Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. again fair story shapers and what a pleasure it is this week susan and i are chatting to the brilliant ali sherrick author of four richly textured deeply researched impeccably written immersive and fascinating novels for children and indeed for anyone each of which has a focus on a different period of history these novels are black powder which takes place at the time of the gunpowder plot the buried crown which is set during world war ii mingling anglo-saxon history in for good measure which i personally enjoyed um, the Queen's Fool, set in 16th century England and France, and most recently, Vita and the Gladiators, set in Roman London. Each of Ali's books is cinematically written, by which I mean they suck you in, boots and all, and refuse to let you go until they're finished. And while you're reading, you may as well be watching the story unfold on a screen in front of you. That's how wonderfully she brings her characters and settings to life. I can't wait to talk to her more about not only her own work, but also her evident fascination with and love for history and people and the many ways in which ordinary folk interweave with huge historical moments. Ali was born in Epsom, the home, she says, of the Derby and the Salts, with a mum who read to her and her sister and a dad who made up stories of his own to entertain his children. According to Ali herself, she grew up in a world full of stories, so it's hardly any wonder that she found her way eventually to becoming an author of brilliant children's books. I'm so looking forward to settling into Ali's story-shaped life and learning more about the books and stories that have inspired, shaped and moulded her and which have helped her become the person and the creator she is today. So, without further ado... Welcome to Story Shaped, Ali Sherrick. It's Welcome. great to have you. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much, you both, for having me. I'm really thrilled and really looking forward to the next hour. So great. are we. <laughs> so are we. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I, I love your books. Um, and as I said before, we started recording. Um, I really do believe that they're they're just so they're so immersively written. You know, um, some of them just you, you just you get swept away completely into the period and into the you know into the era that you're talking about in in, in the book. Um, and I just I love the way you're able to mingle. You know, your you, your research is evident, not not in not in as far as that it's kind of you know hammered into the story, or it's not any in any way didactic, or you know, it's just a natural and an organic part of the way you write your stories, and I just love that. Um, and I just I, I can't wait to talk to you about your your love of history and and the research that you must do and and all this and how you bring your stories to life. So we will talk about that. Um, but the first thing we always ask our guests when we begin a podcast episode is, "Are you story shaped?" So let's begin with that. So Ali, are you story shaped? Well, of course, I have to say, as much <laughs> every one of your guests has said, yes, of course I am. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you've already said, you know, in the introduction that, you know, I grew up in a house full of stories and we'll talk about that a bit more, I'm sure, in a moment. Um, but, you know, we're surrounded by them and I've found it very easy to tap in. So I definitely have a story-shaped brain and little story-shaped antennae. Pipe, pipe. <laughs> You're the first person with story-shaped antennae. Antennae, brilliant. <laughs> Glad to hear. And do they go beep, boop, beep, boop when you come across a good story? <laughs> yes, they do. And I also talk about my story whiskers twitching, you know, um, which uh, is another thing, you know, which I definitely got to think. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're not just story-shaped, you're a story creature. I, uh, oh, I like I the love sound. that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I want to be a story-shaped creature, please. <laughs> <laughs> So when, what's your first memory of stories having an impact on you? Um, I suppose it's really hooking back to something Sinead said um, about my mum reading stories to me and my little sister, um, uh, bedtime stories. Um, and she was absolutely brilliant at doing that. Um, um, I know you had a guest on recently, Victoria Williamson, who said that her mum did all the voices. Um, and my <laughs> did all the voices too so there's something about mums and voices um and uh yeah she would um she would read all sorts of stories to us so Winnie the Pooh was um a pretty important sort of uh, formative story for us um when we were very small um 
And I remember, um, this shows my age, but I remember Willie Rushton, the comedian, um, uh, reading Winnie the Pooh on Jack and Ori, which was, again, a, a, a big part of my childhood growing up, you know, the, the, the TV programme where famous people read stories, which was brilliant. And he did a brilliant Winnie the Pooh, but I have to say my mum just it's did better. Yeah, she was really. She was really. I, know, I think he's departed this earth now. But anyway, she was very good. She was very good. And um, so she read those to us. And she read, I remember she read My Naughty Little Sister by Dorothy Edwards, um, which was brilliantly illustrated by Shirley Hughes. Um, it's a, a, a marriage made in heaven, really. And uh, of course, I had a naughty little sister. <laughs> sister yeah. called Elizabeth. So if she's listening. I hope her ears <laughs> are burning. Um, and uh, yeah, so that really kind of hit home for me, you know, listening to, to my mum reading that book and all the scrapes that my naughty little sister got into. And obviously, I was the narrator. <laughs> I put myself in this <laughs> the girl who was thinking, oh, pesky sister so yeah so she was great and then my dad um you know he he'd um he'd left school at, at 14 um and gone out to work and he hadn't grown up I think in a household full of books you know um the family was uh, working class and I don't think they had much access to that um and he'd been an evacuee um in the war actually and sent away down to Wales to live um and uh, so I remember, um, you know, our childhoods were populated by his stories about being an evacuee and all the things he got up to down there, because actually he generally had a pretty good time down there, you know, London, mm -hmm. out the countryside, getting up to mischief. Um, and um, but he also he also loved telling his own stories. And so he would tell me and my sister stories about this magic coach called um, Charlie. And my dad was an Arsenal supporter. And so Charlie, of course, was red and white. Did I see Sue <laughs> putting her hand up yeah. there? <laughs> I think Arsenal is the family, the family team in Susan's house, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> big <laughs> Arsenal supporters. We live near the stadium. Uh, um, my partner is a season ticket holder. It's like a religion in our household. Yes. <laughs> well, to say, yeah, for my dad as well. So of course, Charlie was red and white, but he had a friend called Fred and he was blue and white. And that was fine by me because I was a Chelsea supporter. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, so that was wonderful. And, you know, he, he subsequently actually in later years wrote them down for his grandsons. Um, oh, which was oh that's so nice. A copy of one of those, you know, with lots of crossings out on it and a big picture he drew of Charlie on the front, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. So he was a real inspiration as well, yeah. Oh. Can I go back to Winnie the Pooh for a second? Because it sounds like Winnie the Pooh is like a really foundational text, like it's deep, deep, deep in there. And listeners, you, can, you won't be able to see it. But behind Ali's head is a beautiful, is it a photograph of a forest? It's actually um, a pen and ink, I think. Yes. Oh, drawing, yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just yeah. wondering what, like, what do you think Winnie the Pooh gave to you? Um... Oh gosh, it is, you're so right, um, Susan. It's really deep rooted when I think it kind of gives me goosebumps actually talking to you now because um, I think it was, um, I had a problem actually when I was reading for myself in, with stories with talking animals, ironically enough. And yet Winnie the Pooh, which is all about, well, I suppose they're talking toys, aren't they? But you know, they are animals nevertheless, but it wasn't ever a problem for me with this book. And um, I just think it was being able to disappear into this world of friends, friends who suddenly, you know, they were inanimate objects, but they suddenly came alive and you had adventures and Pooh, of course, was the bear of little brain, um, <laughs> you know, and Piglet was sort of trying to guide him on the path, you know, and uh, the pair of them were just hilarious together, but also very profound. Um, and I think there's a book, isn't there, called The Tale of Pooh, which comes up with these amazing phrases, you know, that are kind of sort of almost spiritual <laughs> phrases that Pooh comes out <laughs> comes with, out with yeah. too, and, you know, that you could almost live your life by. And uh, I do, you know, I have found myself in difficult times returning to some of that wisdom, you know, and I think also there's an absolute tearjerker of a moment, um, which I guess is probably at the end of the final book in the series, which is 
you know, um, if you go up to the 100 acre wood, and yes, you know, I have got a picture of a forest behind me, if you go up to a 100 acre wood, you know, you know, you'll, you might see a boy and his bear forever playing or, or words like that. In fact, it's, yeah. it's that kind of innocence of, of childhood, you know, um, and almost it's a, it's a time that you must leave behind, I suppose. I mean, as a sort of five, six, seven year old, I wasn't really thinking of that, but, um, you know, it's sort of lodged with me, which yeah. is why it's still very important, actually, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's very moving to listen. Just even you, listening to you talk about it is is, is a moving thing. It, it it's something is there's something very profound, isn't there, about those stories that I suppose bring home the transience of childhood. Maybe you know, and when you're an adult looking back, you realise how beautiful those days were. Hopefully, for most people, they're a beautiful time, you know, and how quickly they go, um, and how little of them you remember, you know, maybe on a, on a granular level, but maybe the the overall impression is all you're left with, you know. And I love that, you know. Maybe you, you'll see a boy in his bear forever playing. I mean, that's really touching, isn't it? Um, but yeah, and even because sorry, Sinead. No, go um, ahead. It's just even though it's transient, like so. Even though there's that period of time when it's gone, and yeah. there's this huge nostalgia in Winnie the Pooh. Like there's such a tone of nostalgia in that book. But that line, there's a boy and his bear forever playing. Forever it's playing. Like, was it, that's it always there. That, yeah. that space yeah. of childhood imagination is eternal. And yes. there are ways that we can access it and get back into it and find that's the magic true. again. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And it, it reminds me as well, I suppose, of my dad, who sadly, I'm probably going to get a bit emotional now, but um, we lost him a, a couple of years ago now. And... Uh, you know, but I, I, he used to come to my book launches and he used to dress up as characters from my book, you know, and we're talking about a guy well into his 80s by that point. But, you know, I always um, thought of him as, um, you know, a boy who never really grew up, you know, um, he was always full of such fun and, and possibility. And he was so curious about the world. Um, and, um yeah, so when he passed away, I kind of had him lodged in my mind as this, still as this boy, really, you know, who, of yeah. course, I never, I never knew, you know, how could I, um, you know, he was my dad, but, um, but I did know him in a fundamental way as a boy. And I think there is something about that. Um, yeah, in, in what you're saying around the whole Winnie the Pooh thing and, and childhood and being forever young. You know, and I, I think that's something I don't know what you guys think, but um, I think that's something as children's authors, that, you know, it's a characteristic that a lot of us, maybe, I mean, all of us fundamentally share that we can mm -hmm. project ourselves back into our childhood quite easily. You know, I mean, yeah. I'm, forever, uh, I'm probably forever a sort of 12 year old, 11, 12 year old, I mm -hmm. think, about um, that's my age, you know, <laughs> I yeah. didn't want a teenager didn't want to be one so you know I was clinging on to to childhood um for a long time after I became a teenager actually yeah <laughs> yeah I hated my teens as well to be honest yeah even me though, too I was like yeah I think even, even though even though I got to be a teenager in the best decade in history which was the 1990s which is amazing <laughs> yeah but, um, but uh but I uh, yeah no I I'm 100 I I think we all have that talent don't we that ability to put ourselves back into those shoes and remember what it was like but uh but I do, I remember you posting about your dad on, on social media, um, you know, while he was with you and, and then after he passed and how how amazing a man he seemed, Ali. So I'm sorry for your loss. Um, he seems like a, a wonderful man. And I'm glad, I'm really glad you had him um, as, a, as a shaping influence because he sounds like a real story shaped individual as well, you know. And of course, I'm sure he was, he was a boy always. I think my own dad, bless him, he's similar in that way. He has that that childish not childish but childlike spark inside him and I think that that keeps anybody young you know um but he's a boy in a wood forever playing now just yeah he's yeah. really emotional <laughs> yeah. yeah no he, he absolutely is you know and I think that's a really good place to be <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah um but gosh yeah so definitely childhood childhood influences are, are so paramount you know the earliest books that we read and the earliest books that we have read to us um, but a lot of people on the podcast talk about their first experiences with the library. Did you have a, a library in your life when you were younger? Did you go to the library? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, they're just so crucial, aren't they? Um, yes. As, as places to go and explore your and unpack your own imagination, discover new things, you know, um, follow your dreams, really. Um, and I think also a very sort of safe and comforting place. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I know when I go into schools now, you know, often if, I, if the school is fortunate enough to have a library, you know, and, and somebody staffing at a librarian, you know, I'm chatting to them and the number of times that they talk about that being a, a safe place for children to come, mm -hmm. you know, and, and be, you know, um, and, and I think it's very true. And, and the, 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 brilliant, the, the brilliant library I had um, in my early life was um, in West Jewel, which is in Surrey, not too far from Epsom where I was born. Um, and it was called Bourne Hall. Uh, I, I hope it's still there. Actually, I haven't been back to Westfield for many, many years, but um, it was quite a modern building at that time. I remember it almost had a sort of space age aspect to it. I kind of remember it probably wrongly, but almost as a, a, a sort of flying saucer that had landed <laughs> in, in this amazing park. Yeah. You know, we had ducks and daffodils, and I think there was even maybe a little stream. I hope my imagination's not going into overload. <laughs> I have to check it but um but you know it was a wonderful place it was it was quite bright and airy um and you could go in there and um I sort of feel there was a, there was a circular thing going on you know and um you could just get lost in there um and I think you know my mum was quite happy to let let me and my sister who was less of a reader actually but you know to let us go off in there and just kind of find a little nook and you know start reading and of course the brilliant thing is as I say again when I go into schools children you know um, if you're not a library member get your library card you know if you still have a local library because mm. you can with a whole stack of books and it's absolutely free you know yeah. and obviously you've got to give them back at the end even though you might not want to sometimes if they've been <laughs> really but you know you can go in and get another whole load um so that library was um yeah, really pivotal to my my early reading, um, I think. Um, and then later we moved and um, we moved in a bit, actually, um, to sort of what I suppose is Greater London now. And uh, my nearest library was um, um, a completely different building, a very sort of um, austere Victorian kind of gothic-y sort of place with the polished floors that smelt of wax and the librarian who... The, the sort that she probably didn't have the half moon spectacles, but you felt she should have. <laughs> she should have had. <laughs> so, uh, I came in and, and that, you know, I mean, we went every fortnight and obviously I still loved it, but it wasn't the atmosphere. It wasn't a spaceship. No, it wasn't a spaceship, no. Um, but you know, I made shift, hey. <laughs> so, do, you have, um, do you have a memory of the first book you read by yourself? Oh, um, that's a tricky question. Um, I'd like to say that I do, but I, I don't honestly think I can pick one out, actually. Um, no, I mean, I don't really remember, rightly or wrongly, that picture books were a particular thing. Yeah, I didn't have picture books either. I didn't read them as a child, only since I became a parent. So, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so I so no picture books really. Um, I honestly no. Sorry to disappoint, but I can't actually pick <laughs> out. I mean, I can I can remember um, another that my mum read to me, which um, again was was brilliant, but you know, slightly strange one perhaps um, for somebody so young. Which was um, the um, in fact I've got the copy here. I know um, that listeners can't see it, but. Um, the just oh, so it's just so stories, Richard Kipling, which is this is my mum's copy. That's oh, amazing. Three shillings, copy. sixpence on the three front. shillings and sixpence. That's amazing. And um, of course, Rudyard Kipling, as I later discovered, was the one that did all these amazing drawings. You know, um, these black and white drawings. He actually illustrated his own book, for goodness' sake. But I remember that because obviously, I, I think he'd written, he had written it for children, but. Um, the language was was very rich and um, you know he played with words um, and had such great fun with them and one of my favorites of all time was the um, story of um, really how the elephant got its trunk um, and it was you know that was the story of the elephant's child um, and apart from the fact I never really understood that it was the child of the elephant I thought it was the name of, of the young elephant you know that he was called the elephant's child. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> weird, isn't it? The sort of things that happen when you're young, when you don't quite understand things, but it didn't matter. And, uh, you know, talking about how he and his family lived on the banks of the great green, greasy Limpopo River, you know, <laughs> um, in Africa. And uh, it was a very funny story as well. Um, for those that don't know it, you know, he, he goes off to um, his friends and relations are very bossy and, and he, he goes off to uh, um, out into the bush and he uh, he asks a question. Um, I forgot what the question is, actually. But anyway, he, he asks a question of various animals and he meets a crocodile and um, the crocodile tells him to come a little closer and, and <laughs> closer because he's full, filled with what he calls great courtiosity. Which causes curiosity. <laughs> oh, having fun with words, you know, so great courtesy. And he's also terribly polite as well because he's brought up to be very polite. So he gets close to the close to this crocodile. And of course, the crocodile snatches his little pug nose, which he has at the time, because elephants didn't have long noses originally. And he uh, pulls and pulls, of course, the nose gets. <laughs> so, no, it's, it's how he got his trunk, how elephants got their trunk, you know. And he goes back. Um, swinging his trunk and feeling rather proud of himself you know and uh, when he meets up with his various friends and relations you know um who are ostriches and you know i don't know cheetahs and lord knows what else he's very rude to them <laughs> and he just <laughs> his you know feet and his trunk and you know it's just a very funny story it's about he's kind of coming of age i suppose without getting too deep you know and he suddenly not only found his trunk but he sort of found his courage to stand up to all these bossy relations so um so I did enjoy that one and again she was great with with how she read that and I think it instilled in me this or helped to instill this love of poetry um right yeah just something else she was very keen on um she used to recite snatches of poems you know every so often you know and you'd be like where did that come from what's <laughs> Um, and I, I, you know, we did poetry at, at primary school, you know, we actually yeah. studied people like Ted Hughes and, and some of the greats, you know, and Walter de la Mer and, and all those sort of um, poets. And um, there's, there's a poem which, um, you know, I'd like to mention if that's okay. Absolutely. Um, yeah. is a, it's a, a poem that tells a story. So, you know, I hope it has a place here because aside from the fact that the love of words and everything, you know, and playfulness with words, which poetry can help encourage, I think, in young people, is um, it's the it's the Highwayman by Alfred Noyes. I love um, the Highwayman. I, yeah. It's a Victorian poem, isn't it? And I, I just love that story of the you know the innkeeper's daughter waiting for her her love. You know, her love, the yeah. and he's gunned down, isn't he, on the on the road? You know, by the the soldiers, and um, she's sort of left waiting at the at the inn door she's a tavern keeper's daughter and it's just it's very very um romantic um very gothic um yeah full of possibility and excitement and adventure and it's um, just got this amazing rhythm as well doesn't it it's a beautiful yeah yeah it's a really great rhythm yeah yes yeah um it's yeah, kind of so like you just like it catches you and you can't it won't let go of you until no, the poem is no, over you're on, you're on the back of the, the horse. like a, like a yeah. galloping horse yeah. Yeah. yeah the highwayman yeah. came riding 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 the highwayman came riding, riding up to the old indoor i mean fantastic rhythm and of course there's the ghostliness at the end isn't there you know you're forever going to hear his his horse's hooves you know on the road you know after obviously he's um he's long since departed this life so yeah so so poems were an important part for me as well um, in my kind of uh, journey into writing. Yeah, fantastic. No poems. Yeah, maybe is it a is it a generational thing? I mean, my parents, you know, learned poetry in school, and my 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 parents like that as well. That suddenly out of nowhere, or apropos of nothing, like my dad to turn around and start reciting something just randomly, and I'm I'm just I admire that so much that he still has the ability to recall so well you know stuff that he would have learned in his own childhood and um that he uh, we didn't do that at no. least I don't remember ever learning poetry no, we, we didn't, didn't learn by heart at school no. it's not something we did so it's maybe it's a skill that we should have kept up I don't know but so um but I love that yeah my granddad would always he'd always especially when I was doing my um English degree in university um which he was very proud of because he didn't go to university but he'd come up and he'd recite it like a few lines of a poem and he'd be like what's that I'd be like <laughs> 
I don't know. <laughs> he's like, what are they teaching you in this degree? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. I'd fail that one as well. Oh, God. <laughs> um, when did you discover a love of history? Um, well, I kind of, again, grew, grew up with that, really. It was my, I blame my dad again. <laughs> <laughs> He, he was really into his history um, and um, we used to go on holiday in the UK always, you know, um, I think sort of going abroad wasn't really such a thing, you know, and it was less affordable anyway. Um, and so we'd, we'd always go yomping off, you know, for our two weeks away and sometimes we'd be lucky, you know, we'd go away at the odd half term as well. And on days out, you know, weekends, you know, we would head off um, and we would often go to a castle, you know, ruined castle um, or an abbey, even better, you know. Um, and of course, you're not meant to climb on the stones, are you? But uh, <laughs> English heritage, I confess, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, or sometimes stately homes, but they were a bit less interesting to me. I just love the whole ruinous nature of, of these other places. And, you know, they were from a time so, so far away back that I couldn't really conceive of it um and uh yeah so we just loved doing all of that and you know Roman villas and obviously Hadrian's Wall and uh oh, a whole host of places um so we were always doing that you know um and then I think it was just his passion was sort of certainly for me it was catching um I think my sister she enjoyed those things but she sometimes used to groan if we headed off into a yeah, another church <laughs> to, to admire, you know, the stained glass or the, the ancient this or that, you know, but, um, but yeah, you know, so that just was, was in, infectious, it was catching, um, and I um, enjoyed history at school, um, and I remember we did um, things like the Tudors, which were quite exciting, because there's lots of colourful characters, um, you know, in that time, and lots of, um, chopping chopping off of heads um <laughs> which I confess now I was quite a kind of ghoulish little girl you know I did love all that sort of grizzliness and um so so and you know they were very flamboyant characters then um, the Tudors so I enjoyed learning all of that and I actually took it on I mean it was in the day when you did O levels rather than GCSEs but I did history and then I decided I enjoyed it so much I did it at A level and actually then um, went on to university and although initially I started off doing an English degree this was up in Newcastle um, uh, funnily enough a few weeks into that I just wasn't getting on with all these Scandinavian playwrights <laughs> what are doing? I mean I'd gone to do an English degree and we were doing <laughs> and Strindberg and well Chekhov who's Russian of course but anyway he fell into the same camp as far as I was concerned I know, know this is probably sacrilege but anyway I I just couldn't be doing with it and um, I was feeling very um, discombobulated I love that word I was feeling very discombobulated <laughs> thinking well what am I going to do because I'm like seven weeks in and I'm having a miserable time and yet I was so excited at the prospect and uh, I was lucky because I was doing um, a history um, option as that, you know, you were encouraged to do a subsidiary topic when you did your main degree. And I was doing a history option and rather bizarrely, I'd picked a medieval history option, which I don't know why I did that because I, I hadn't particularly shown an, in, an obvious inclination to find out more about medieval history before that. Although of course the castles and the abbeys mm. probably came into play, didn't they? Thinking about it, but I, um, I thought, oh, well, I'm quite enjoying this, you know. And then a friend, bless her, said to me, um, well, you know, you could see if you could convert because um, there are some options in your English degree which you're enjoying, which I was, which was, guess what, Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> you're among friends here. You're among friends here, for sure. <laughs> yes, I do, I do know. I do know you two have got form in this department. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So I was just like, oh, God, I'm enjoying this. And, and she said, well, look, you can do this. Um, look here, you know, she said, you can do medieval English studies. And she said, because you're doing that already, really. And she said, you know, you're, you're doing a history. She said, you just need one other topic. She said, you can do a combined degree. Why don't you go and talk to the head of combined studies went to see this guy lovely guy called Jerry Patterson and um, he said well actually we're not so far into the term that it's impossible for you to just pick up you, you need another subject 
what would you pick? Well, I'd been, um, I hadn't done French as an A-level, but I'd been an au pair in uh, the French-speaking part of Belgium in the Ardennes Mountains, because um, I'd taken a year off before going to university. And um, I'd actually taught myself um, French. I'd done O-level French, so I was pretty ropey, but I taught myself French um, using a book, actually, okay. um, a book by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Um, Oh. Uh, I've actually gone laboriously through my French with my French English dictionary, building my word bank up using the little thing. Yeah, using a story. And so my French, obviously, I was, you know, looking after three young kids. I had to sort of sink or swim. I sort of picked up French with a Belgian accent very quickly. <laughs> and and um, so my French was passable. You know, it was kind of it was probably A-level standard. Um, and so they, they, they said, well, look, you know, Jerry said, you can you can do a sort of an intensive kind of crash course, you know, in the first year to get you up to speed and it'll be fine. So I basically was allowed to uh, switch and I sort of dropped all those dreary Scandinavian playwrights and, <laughs> you know, went into this world of medievalism really, because my history was medieval, my English was definitely medieval, and then, hey, guess what? I even did some medieval French. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a complete convert, you know, by, by the end of that to all things medieval, yeah. So, um, brilliant. Yeah, so, so, yeah, it all stems back, I think, from those early days going around the dungeons, peering into the bottomless wells, you know, lying in the, the open coffins meant for the monks in the abbeys. So yes, we did yeah. that. <laughs> and it's it's funny that, I mean, I know you've written, you had Anglo-Saxon history sort of woven into um, uh, The Buried Crown, but you haven't really written a book that's wholly set in the Middle Ages, really? I haven't. Do you, do you uh, think you ever will? Well, um, I, I kind of live in hope that I might. I think it's it's finding, finding the story. Um, yeah. Um, and the time, because obviously the medieval period is a pretty vast period, you know, yes, and, uh, you know, although we tend to sort of lump it all into medieval, of course, us medievalists know it wasn't really that, you know, it was the sort of early medieval and, you know, mm -hmm. the medieval and, 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 you know, society and the world changed hugely during that time. So, um, yes, I, I, I think I would like to, but I'm still waiting for my story whiskers to twitch and my to, you know, flicker. <laughs> so when that happens, when the when the whiskers twitch and the antennae go, yeah, like what's going on? What's talk talk us through what happens when you get a whiff of a story? Yeah, I mean it's often um, through a place that I'm inspired for my stories, my own stories, um, and you know, it, it might be an object in that place, it just might be the setting, it might be a story attached to that, but it just sort of, I sort of, you know, it's that old story question of what if, I think, oh, I just think, I'm struck, this is unusual, I mean, I, I went to um, a ruined um, Tudor house, um, not too far from where we live, in, in it's down in Sussex, um, called Cowdray, and that was um, where I discovered that a certain Guy Fawkes had been um, mm -hmm. a sort of gentleman servant, if you like, to the great Catholic Lord who owned this, this palace, Lord Montague. And he'd been there um, when he was a younger man. Um, and it turned out, actually, when I did a bit more research, that he'd actually got sacked. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure why, but he got sacked. So classic Guy Fawkes, really. He got sacked. And, but then he was reappointed by... Um, the, the um, successor to, to, to the original Lord, you know, taken on again. Um, and I just thought to myself, what is this guy doing? What's this guy doing <laughs> in, in this deepest, darkest Sussex? Of course, you know, this palace was one of the richest palaces at the time and, you know, host to kings and queens and things. So it wasn't, you know, so remote, but, um, but you know, I just thought, what was he doing here? You know, and, and then it's just that like, what if, what if, what if, you know, there's a young boy, you know, who who has cause to come to this place, you know. Um, what if he meets a stranger in the tunnels under the house? The tunnels were my invention, by the way, but that doesn't matter. You know, the tunnels, they haven't been discovered yet in the real one. But <laughs> and, uh, 
And you know, what, what if he meets this stranger and what if they set off on a journey that takes them to um, the dark streets of London, you know, and what if it's 1605? you know, the autumn of 1605, <laughs> um, which those of you that know all about, you know, the gunpowder plot and everyone that lights a bonfire or sets off fireworks on the 5th of November will, you know, will realise that that's a really important date, you know, um, certainly, you know, in, in Britain for, for all sorts of shenanigans, you know, that went on. But uh, yeah, so I, I just, it's that sort of thing. It's, you know, it's the the potentiality, you know, that what if question, and am I going to be able to build on that, um, you know, uh, and, and will it perhaps develop into something interesting? So yeah, I suppose that's how it works for me. Hopefully, hopefully one day as you are reading something about the Middle Ages or you're thinking about the Middle Ages, you might find something that sparks your your uh, your story, Antonia, because I'd love to I'd love to read your take on on something from my own favourite period of history, it would be wonderful. Um, yeah, I love Guy Fawkes, so I love the story of Guy Fawkes. And I remember one time I saw a, a picture of Guy Fawkes' signature. I think it was like his, his, his signature prior to him being tortured and then afterwards and you could see the, you know, the deterioration in his handwriting and, you know, the, it was obvious, it was evident, like the pain and the suffering he'd been put through. And I, I personally found that really poignant and really sad, you know, to see that he had been broken so badly by, by his tormentors you know um so yeah, yeah. He's, a, he's a very powerful um historical figure but is, yeah I, yeah fantastic i'm sure you did a wonderful job that's the one of the only book of yours i haven't read is the black is black powder so i'm definitely going to get that one um because guy fox is a fascinating historical figure um but how like i suppose you have a you have a knowledge or you probably have a, you have an in-depth knowledge of the of the middle ages so i guess that wouldn't take as much research if you were to write a story in that era but like in general, how, how much research or how long does it take you to sort of put a story together or make it, you know? Um, yeah, I do deep dive into my research. I mean, obviously, you know, I've said I, I love history and, it, you know, for me, it's a, a natural setting really um, to sort of swim around in. I'm very comfortable with it. I, I never feel it's, an, it's, it's a chore or, you know, or, or an mm -hmm. add-on whatever because you know I really really want to tell the story I, I it's a really fundamental part of how I work and um, so I'm prepared to spend a lot of time doing the research not to the extent that I never get started on the, uh, <laughs> on the story which is a, is a common sort of danger I think for anyone writing historical fiction really because you know you can get so fascinated by things and there are lots of um, rabbit holes that you can disappear off down you know absolutely um, you're not disciplined um so I do try to exert some discipline on myself but I what I I sort of do is I kind of think of my brain a bit as a, as a sponge you know and initially it's a dry sponge when I start and you know gradually I'm taking on all this stuff and I have to do the bigger picture stuff first you know I have to understand the world my characters are going to inhabit and, the, and then what the big events political you know social culture whatever going on um religious as well of course um but i i i then sort of take on detail more about the kind of how did people used to live in those times you know how did the sort of people i want to write about live you know because although kings and queens and prime ministers and plotters might have you know parts in my story i'm not writing about them you know it's, yeah. it's my children my my child characters that are first and foremost up front you know so what sort of lives would they live you know and I, I love all that sort of research into clothing and food and mm. you know strange customs and I love as well I found this great resource you might know it um it's um uh, a website devoted to the etymology of um words you know so you if you think you know you might want to write a story where you want to call someone you know I don't know a clodpole or a, <laughs> a jackanape <laughs> whatever some sort of form of abuse you know you know and others as well you can actually look look up the origins of those words and when they found a first usage for them in the English language you know it's amazing what's that what's what that is website that website I want it's, it <laughs> you want it yeah it's called um etymy online so e-t-m-y and then online and then it's dots something. I'm not sure. You, you'd find it. I'll find it. We'll put it in the yeah. show notes. That sounds amazing. I love 
etymology and this, mm. the history of words is my my thing <laughs> yeah no, it's great and I'm um, obviously I mean you know I, I try not to use too many of those sorts of words because it can be off-putting for a young reader you don't want to wade through a load of rather strange arcane sort of phrases and things but um you know it's good isn't it just to drop a little a bit here and there you know just to make them feel oh, yes you know I'm definitely in the 17th century or whenever you know um so um so I do that as well you know um but usually that's as I'm sort of writing to be honest so so my brain is this sponge it's filling up it's filling up and it it kind of gets to this point where I feel if I squeeze it something's going to start dripping out now <laughs> a story hopefully nothing unpleasant and um and you know then I'll I'll get going because otherwise you know I could easily just you know not get started um and of course you know you can always go back to the research it's the sources are always there and available you know and if you need to top up and things or if you really need to understand whether it was possible to have a pet mouse that was caught by a humane mouse trap in early 17th century England and the answer is yes because I found somebody that had done a whole load of research into historical mouse traps would you believe you know? <laughs> it's amazing Brilliant. You, know, you can do you can check that as you're going along and and it's I, I, you know, at that point, it becomes a very functional thing, the research. And so I suppose I sometimes get a little bit frustrated because if I'm in full flow with the story and I have to stop and look up whether, you know, Greenwich Palace, Palace had a, a garden or something and what was in it, then I'm a bit like, oh, you know, do I, do I really have to research, you know, Tudor <laughs> flowers at this point? But, you know, that's just, you just get on with it, don't you really? Um, um, and then, of course, there are the, the, the final bits of research you're doing at the last gasp when perhaps a copy editor has queried something and you're like, oh, God, I better check, you know, was was a Roman denarius really bigger than a Cistercius or, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, you know, um, you go back and just fix things, you know, so that research is happening even right at the very end, you know, sometimes, but it's in a small way. Yeah, just, so, just sorry. Does research ever ever shape your plot or do you ever find your story changing because of the research you've done or because of things you discover? Um, I, I think, yes, I think it can do because, you know, I, I'll, I'll find something out. I mean, in fact, I'm, you know, something I'm, I'm working on at the moment. I'm at the research phase and it, it's early on, you know, so obviously it's all to play for. But, you know, I've um, I've discovered um, that, you know, there were particular um characters who were um sort of in a religious context they were you know they were saw themselves as sort of prophets you know <laughs> and uh you know there was a, was a lot of this going on at the time of the, when my book set you know a kind of free-for-all with religion really and um you know but there were people you know from different sects and you know putting themselves about and saying all sorts of things about the world and you know heaven and hell and I I thought, oh God, you know, th th this is actually going to result in a character coming into my story that, you know, because it's early days anyway, but I hadn't even thought that that character might be part of this particular gang that my my main character is going to find themselves in, you know, and then now this character has a name and <laughs> this character is starting rather scarily to take over. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> sort of see where that's going because he's not really meant to be the principal baddie but you know hey <laughs> we'll see the story once the story once yeah, um yeah. and do, do you obviously uh, maybe this is a silly question but do you do you read a lot of historical fiction or what what kind of historical fiction books would you find inspirational or or were there yeah. particular historical fiction that you read and you were like oh i want to do this yeah um i think um i i read when i was younger you know when I, I became competent in my reading um so obviously we're sort of going back into my childhood a bit now but um you know because I hadn't actually found reading easy when I was at school you know I think I was possibly a bit unhappy in my first infant school anyway and um yeah I, it wasn't really working out for me and I was doing a lot of guessing of words and things and feeling mm. thoroughly or because I loved stories you know and I just couldn't seem to read any of my own but then we moved um, um, back out into Surrey and went to a school with a fantastic headmistress who used to invite children into her 
her study sounds grand it wasn't at all it was a very comfy sort of place um lots of books and uh you know it, she would just sort of when you'd read a book you'd go and see her and um she would give you a sticky shape and a smarty if you told her about the book Aww, that's so <laughs> sweet she was a lovely lady called mrs branson and um yeah so uh she and teachers and my mum and dad obviously doing work with me you know suddenly something clicked in my brain and the words began to sort of form into sentences and paragraphs and stories so I was late to reading I suppose really you know um I wouldn't say I wasn't dyslexic or anything like that but just a bit of a slow starter but once I sort of got underway then you know I think the books I really loved um and again I've actually got them here and I, I know this is a disadvantage because listeners are thinking what's she doing but I, I can't resist it <laughs> so these books like this one the walls uh, of, of Willoughby Chase oh that's amazing you know and I love um Love, love, love Joan Aiken. Um, I, you know, Black Hearts in Battersea, Nightbirds on the Nantucket, um, her short story collections, you know, um, A Pinch of Weather, Necklace of Raindrops, yeah. um, you know, all of that. I, I, she's just so brilliant. And um, this is a great story because it's set in an alternate history, as I'm sure you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, at the time of King James III, which is a sort of 19th century Victorian kind of time because as we know James III hasn't you know hasn't been one of those yet and uh, the story of two young girls you know um, beset by this dreadful governess called Miss Slycarp who's trying to get the family home you know snaffle the family home from under their feet um, while one of their parents is away so it's the parents are away and there are wolves and you know there's a goose boy called Simon um, who comes to their aid and and I was reading something just recently about Joan Aiken and to talk about the fact that she sort of wrote Dickensian plots. Um, and um, her view apparently was that um, she knew that children um, loved rereading books. And so I think, she, you know, the, the idea was that she felt she wanted to deliver these plots, plots that were complex and twisty, you know, and involved um because you know the children would go back and they get something else from them you know um and each rereading would you know bring you know other other insights so that that was an interesting more recent discovery but yeah so i loved that because it was sort of history of a sort and then i also um loved um this story which is a traveler yeah. in time by alison utley oh, and um that's a story about a girl in the modern day, although of course I think this was written in the 30s, um, sometime like that, and uh, called Penelope, who goes back in time to the time of the um, Babington plot, which was the plot um, some English nobles, Catholic nobles, and Mary Queen of Scots um, to try and dethrone Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so she goes back to this house, um, beautiful house. In the countryside and you know gets caught up in that so i loved that so it's a time slip i suppose but it's still obviously still very much historical and then this one um sorry is um penelope oh, lively's i love that one. thomas kemp it's brilliant yeah. and yeah. you can get all of these books still today with different yeah. covers and i take them into schools you know and show the kids and say this is what i was reading when i was your age and you know i love this because it is a ghost story but of course it's about this it's really funny Yes, it's funny, yes. This apothecary called Thomas Kemp from the 1600s, I think, you know, and um, sort of haunting this boy called James in the present. Again, this was written a few years ago, but, um, but you know, wants him to be his assistant. And I sort of, when I tell children about this at school, I say, you know, hands up, who thinks they want to be Thomas Kemp's assistant? And you get a few brave takers, but most <laughs> people sit on their hands. Oh, but I would have loved to have been Thomas Kemp's assistant, you know, I don't know about <laughs> you guys, but yeah. Um, and, and then finally this one, which was on television, which is- um, Oh yeah, I have the same oh, Carrie's copy. War. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Carrie's War um, by Nina Borden, um, you know, set in the Second World War and about a young girl and her, her, her brother who go down to Wales. Um, so it sort of resonated with my dad's yeah. evacuation stories actually. and. Um, Go to a place called Druid's Bottom, and there's a skull and lots of mystery, and the war is raging, you know, and they're far from home. And if you look at these books, look how thin. I know. Yeah, I know. we often say that on the yeah. pod, don't we? How books in older books, or you know, books from the, the classic period of fantasy or whatever, they're so they're so, they're so compact and concise. Yeah. 
compact and, yes. and and yet they they say so much and they achieve so much in 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 a comparatively um you know tight space i i just i don't know how they had that ability or skill or what it was it's just a matter it's a, it's it's a, it's you definitely there's a there's a feel about books from that time isn't there you know you can it's it's definitely it's it's beautiful i love it Yes, yeah. Same as same as the, the Alan Garners, the Susan Coopers that we're always rattling on about here on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> but all of I'm... those ones you've mentioned, I've read all of those in my childhood. I have them on my shelves. Like, yeah. Some yeah. of the same versions as the ones you have. Yeah. yeah, kindred kindred spirits. But I think I think the other thing is that um, you know, people like Joan Aiken didn't hold back in challenging young readers with with um words you know um words that they might not understand you know like just mm. skimming through i've just saw you know a sentence in the wolves of willoughby chase where she was talking about the sky was lowering you know and as a sort of nine ten year old would i have known what lowering was and <laughs> no i wouldn't you know and i might have gone to the dictionary or i might just have got the feel of it from <laughs> everything else i was reading and uh yeah i just love that about um her writing that she just expected readers to kind of you know get on with it really <laughs> yeah. um, I mean I was a keen reader admittedly that might not have suited children that perhaps struggled with reading I appreciate that but but for me it was great you know it was like trusting your reader you know and giving them free reign and I think that's a very powerful thing absolutely yeah I love that I love books that don't talk down or that don't you know books that challenge in the expectation or the hope that kids will rise to it because they always do in yes. my in my experience yes. um brilliant i love that and it's funny because i've read i think all of the books you mentioned except for a traveler in time uh Alison, i haven't read that one but i didn't read them in, in my childhood i've read them all in my in 20s 30s and even some of them quite recently i think i only read carrie's war in the last sort of five years so but i do love them all but it's just i wish i'd had them or i wish i'd experienced or i wish i'd been exposed to them as a child it would, it would have been then again uh, I wonder what, how my life would have been shaped differently if I had read them when I was younger. But they're all yeah. certainly they're fantastic books, absolutely fantastic. Um, and uh, I don't know. Do you have any unfulfilled writerly ambitions? Anything that you'd love to write about that you haven't written about yet? Um, I, I mean, as I said earlier, you know, I, you know, a medieval story would be lovely if I could conjure something up there. Um, I've. Um, I've got another story, well, funnily enough, it, I suppose it is, it is early medieval. I have got a, um, an idea for a story um, set in the Anglo-Saxon times, um, which uh, I've worked up a basic plot outline for. Um, it's not going anywhere at the moment because actually my publisher has um, chosen something else I submitted, you know, the, the one I was sort of referencing earlier, which is set later on, but, um, uh, and isn't medieval, but, uh, but you know, I do, um, I do really like the idea of the Anglo-Saxon one. And um, in fact, it was um, it, it's, a, it's a book for adults, which which you might have read, which I, I think has been more recently sort of preying on my mind. I love I love this book. It's a book called The Wake by um, Paul Kingsnorth. Oh yeah. And it was published by Unbound, and I think it was long listed for. Uh, I won't say the man Booker, but um, whether I might or not, I don't know. But uh, it's sort of written in a, a pseudo um, Anglo-Saxon, mm. actually. I mean, the pseudo is quite the right word because it's brilliantly done. Um, and, you know, it's there's a I think there's a glossary at the back to help with some of the words. But, you know, you basically again, you're you know, you, you use other words to help you understand what those words are that you might not know, you know. And it comes to life and it's all about um, uh, a man who refuses to give in to the Normans <laughs> and is um, still wanting to, to rebel. You know, this is after 1066, you know, and the Normans are coming in and building their castles everywhere. Um, and it's, it's linked to the Herod with the Wake, story of Herod the Wake. Who, Herod the Wake, yeah. Uh, who held out mm. in the markets in Ely in Cambridgeshire. Um, was one of the last uh, pockets of resistance um, to the Normans and William the Conqueror. And so my story um, idea, Anglo-Saxon story idea, is is set in those times. Um, you know, and it's after the conquest, um, and uh, but you know, not too long after um, when obviously there's been great upheaval and 
bloodshed and these strangers in the land you know um mm -hmm. so i would <laughs> i would really like to write that one um one day well, i shall 100 percent defining that one so <laughs> please <laughs> go for it that sounds amazing oh, wow. <laughs> i have a question i guess is linked to this and and it's unfortunately her last question because we're coming up to an hour already oh which my always surprises <laughs> it us. always surprises me too i can't believe it yeah <laughs> but i my question is like so you were talking about the, the books that you want to write but what's coming what's coming next from you if you can tell us yeah, um, I, I probably can't say a huge amount. Um, I mean, it's got a working title, but as we know, titles change anyway. You know, it certainly mm -hmm. happened in the past. So, um, if I if I say to you um, that it's it's set at a time um, when the country was riven in two um, by warring factions, <laughs> and there were strange times uh, where anything was possible and the world um, was being turned upside down, then if you know your history, you'll kind of <laughs> guess where That's we might be headed. Good uh, head. And, and there very are exciting. There are horses and muskets and brave women and, you know, brave girls and mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, and all sorts of strange religious beliefs and, you know, yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> a bit of yeah. a i'm getting a good vibe from this and i'm slamming the pre-order button right now <laughs> that sounds amazing yeah so wow. so that's that's but it's of course it's a very complex world that i'm you know sort of entering into and i did actually cover it to be honest at um uh, a level but that was many years ago and uh and of course starting back into the kind of you know bigger picture research as I've been doing you know I've, I've sort of thought oh my goodness I've given myself a run for for my money here because <laughs> there's so much you know there's so yeah. much um and of course it's a time when lots of things were recorded and noted and there was a very um you know uh, well there's a, a burgeoning tradition of pamphleteering and newsletters and you know so it's not it's not a time where you know it's perhaps like my last one you know beach and the gladiator where there's a that's a little bit more difficult to find primary resources you know and in, in some cases because the you know society that the British society the story setting wasn't really a literate society so you've not got lots of records and things you know mm -hmm. of course this new one <laughs> you've got it coming out of your ears really you know and um, the only thing they didn't really have was film and you know broadcast media thank you <laughs> <laughs> So, um, but there are plenty of reenactments I can go to. So <laughs> amazing! Wow. Yeah, um, so. Just before we just quickly before we go, I wanted to ask you: um, Did you have you ever um, read Rosemary Sutcliffe, or do you, do, you, do you would you have read her as a child? Her books. Um, I never, funny enough, thank yes, thank you for the prompt. Now I never read Rosemary Sutcliffe as a child because I, I think I, I tried and um, sort of found that I found it quite difficult to get into. And then right, yeah. um, when I um, I was actually already underway with writing Vita and the Gladiator and I was well into the first draft but I thought well I should read her and I'd, I'd seen the film version of Eagle of the Ninth I think it's just called The Eagle so mm -hmm. I thought well I'll read The Eagle of the Ninth um, and um, we'd been to Silchester which is where her story is partly set um, you know um, before so not too far from us so I was familiar with the environment and honestly it's such a beautifully written book um, yeah that's stunningly written and um I found it really resonated with me actually um mm. and um I do credit it at the back of of the book you know um and yeah because I, I found it very very useful um in sort of just her take on the kind of uh, the, the sort of British you know world of the the, the Celts and what have you you know yeah. um just how she represented them um and um you know as we're all magpies um i i just sort of you know admit you know there are one or two little things i've sort of borrowed a bit you know on to <laughs> flesh out my own representation of that world but yeah. i hope in a respectful way anyway yes i'm sure i'm sure she wouldn't mind <laughs> um, yeah that's, that's one that i didn't read as a, as a kid either i read it in adulthood but it's it's beautiful i, I love the england ninth um so Cool. That's amazing. Well, as Susan said, sadly, we are we are on the hour and I can't believe it because I, I knew this. I knew this would be a wonderful conversation and I have loved every second of it. So 
um no. ali thanks thank you so much it's been it's been wonderful we've had such a wonderful uh, I, i don't know a wonderful stroll through the through the 100 acre wood of your, of your <laughs> story shaped life it's been wonderful um i really really enjoyed it um so thank you for sharing your memories and sharing your 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 beautiful i don't know your beautiful experiences as a, as a younger reader um and and all the books that have made you and not not all some of the a select few of the books that have made you into the person and the writer that you are today it's been a privilege to be here with you thank you so much for that um and uh, that's great it's, it's wonderful to have had you um and thank you to the listeners too if you're still with us uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode and i hope that you've enjoyed it um and as we always say at the end of the episodes if you can take a second to give us a rating or a review on the podcast platform of your choice that would be really helpful um and um we shall be back next week with another wonderful guest but um but for now um all i have to say is thank you once again to andy sherrick um and thank you to my wonderful beautiful co-host susan cahill um it's been a it's been a joy to be with you here today guys and <laughs> thank you so much everybody so it's uh bye bye from me schneider hart and it's bye bye from bye bye from me susan cahill and andy ali sherrick <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod. And don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts. Mm-hmm.